What's going on, guys? Welcome to this edition of the Q&A. This is John Papaloni. And Saad Wali. All right. So today, we are going to be talking real estate. We have uh, about uh, a few questions coming on. If you have a question, you can type it in. We will see it. We will get it. Um, we have some uh, that was asked in advance. That's the ones we're going to start off with. So let's start off with question number one. Can a landlord rent out their home for one year and then ask the tenant to leave so he can relist the home on the MLS to get the current market value instead of raising the rent to the government allowed amount? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> it doesn't work this way. <laughs> I know. I mean, I can, uh, that landlord is funny. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. the thing, right? Like it's, I mean, there's a reason. If everybody could just get rid of the tenants and then have new people just to raise the rent, I think everybody would do that instead of just taking the, you know, the 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever the government allows that year. Yeah. So there's a reason there's the rules. I mean, technically, sometimes you've seen people try to um, serve notice to evict a tenant so they can sell the place. Technically, that's not even legal. You can't evict a tenant for the purpose of selling a home on an empty house. It just doesn't work that way. The way the N12 was set up is supposed to be because the new buyer wants to move in. If they're going to re-rent it, they can't evict the old tenant. It's just not the way it works. Yeah, yeah. But but sometimes you can always uh, like have an agreement with the landlord or with the tenant, whatever which side. On, and and sometimes those agreements work and, and find a solution that works for both sides, and every, both sides are happy. Absolutely, but that's yeah. that's agreeing. Yeah. You can do anything you want if both sides agree. Yeah. Right. But I've never heard a tenant come around and sing the landlord saying, "Hey, I want you to leave." So I can up the price by $400 instead of $100. No, no, don't do that. Here's the $400. No, no, it won't happen. No. No. (laughs) No, I'm talking about selling, selling the property. Yeah, even that, right? Like I've never, you know, like it's usually, again, so you got to agree. Like a lot of times if you want vacant possession, sometimes what happens is the uh, landlord will offer one month's rent back to help you find your uh, second, your, you know, your uh, second last month's rent on your new place. Sometimes it's better to take that. Then they have the buyer come in and say, I want vacant possession so I can move in. And then they don't even get that. Yeah. There's obviously options and you got to see where you're at at that time. But, you know, just telling you what's legal, not legal. Yeah. So number two, what happens when I show a property to a buyer who does not have an agent and they end up going to the listing agent to purchase the property afterwards? Ouch. Yeah. If you don't have a buyer's rep agreement... You pretty much say next because you're not getting anything from it. Yeah, too bad. Yeah, that, that's something you have to vet in advance. Yeah. Now, a lot of times buyers will uh, lie because they think they're getting an advantage somehow. And it's not true. There really isn't an advantage. But you can't blame them for trying. They don't understand. They're not the educated ones. The realtors are. So our job really is to educate them. So in reality, is it's actually your own fault. Because you didn't educate them and weed them out properly. What you should have done, like a lot of times people come in and say, hey, you know, they're asking questions and you ask, do you have an agent? Well, if a person's trying to get information out of you and they don't want to bother their agent, they're going to say, oh, no. Because once they say you have an agent, they may not want to, uh, they may say contact your agent. They don't want to do that for whatever reason. So a trick for a realtor 
So when a person comes up and you, instead of saying, do you have an agent? Cause they're all going to say no, even if they do, because <laughs> why do you ask that? Yeah. Right. So just say, who's your agent? Nobody thinks of it. Cause you don't ask that way. And then they'll say, Oh, it's Bob Smith or I don't have one. Nine out of 10 times. That's the truth at that point. Cause you didn't ask, do you, you asked, who is it? So it's sort of when they get thrown off, they'll answer with the truth. Yep, exactly. hundred percent. It works. It works. I've tried. Right. It. And there's nothing wrong with helping people. Let's, let's be clear. Like our job is to help people. But what ends up happening is part of our rules is that we can't interfere with another agent. And when they're already represented by somebody else, it can be considered interference. So anyways, that being aside, let's move on to the third question. You want to read it? Yes, sure. If a first time buyer is purchasing their first property, but does not plan to live in the home, would they still get the tax credit on the land transfer tax? What else would they need to know? HST does not apply answers to what else? Hmm. Oh, what else do they need to know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So first time buyer purchasing the first property does not plan to live in the home. Would they still get the tax credit on the land transfer tax? So it's mainly like, it's like an investment property. I guess. Yes. But if you're a first time home buyer, yeah, for land transfer tax, you would get it. You can still get it. I believe it's up to four thousand uh, yes, dollars per uh, per purchaser. Yeah. If you're both first time buyers, like if it's a couple, both will get a four thousand dollar credit. If uh, one's a uh, a first time buyer and the other one's not a first time buyer, it's on, only the one person will get the credit. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's per deal, like per transfer. Per thousand yeah. dollars per per like the property. Oh, total. You mean? Yeah, that's a possibility. Uh, th this is what I what I know. I I, I'm I can't certain. remember to be honest. I, I don't uh, remember the total amounts because that's usually the lawyers and we tend to. Yeah, know. actually, yeah. this question is more for the lawyers. Yeah. Right, but but either way, the tax credit would apply to a first time home buyer, whether it's for investment or whether it's to live in. That really doesn't matter. What? Oh, okay. I get the HSD does not. Okay, that was my own note. Sorry. Okay, what I wanted to say, what else do you need to know? Where the difference is between buying the home to live in and buying a home to uh, invest in and rent out is you may end up paying the HST on the home. That's where the difference is. HST is not exempt on an investment property. And on top of that, when you sell, you're not going to be exempt from capital gains either. So that's the only difference. But that would not matter whether you're a first-time home buyer or whether you're a repeat buyer, that's the same. The only thing that applies to the first-time home buyer is the land transfer tax. Yep. So if a prospective tenant has someone co-signing the lease agreement for them, what does the co-signer have to provide or do? What are they liable for, and what are some of the things they should be aware of? So usually co-signer provide their proof of income and their credit score or credit report, and... Uh, I guess they're liable if that tenant does not pay uh, the rent. Yeah, pretty much. They're when you're co-signing, it's yeah. like you're on the lease as well. Yeah. But what it is is that the person who's moving in will, is basically agreeing to pay. You're liable if they don't pay. So you're not. it's not coming from your bank account unless the other person doesn't pay. Then you're liable to make the payments, and your credit history could be on the line as well. So it's not like they lose their credit, but yours is saved. Yours is, you're on the hook just as much as the person who uh, moved in. Okay. What time does the seller have to be out of the home on closing day? 
Like if I get the keys to the home at four o'clock and I arrive at the house, the seller has not left yet. Is that legal? No. Usually on the closing day, you're supposed to, once you deliver the keys to the lawyer or drop off the keys at the property with a lockbox, that's when you're out as a seller. You can't be in and then give the keys. Not exactly. Not exactly because people move on. <clears throat> people move out on the uh, same day. Yeah. And what happened is that sometimes, sometimes, yeah, if people move on, oh, um, people move out on the same day. Like if, if your closing date is Friday. Yeah. Sometimes the lawyers get you to drop off the keys on Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah. So you still have an extra set of keys. And, and then you can just leave it in the property. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's my point. So that, that is an opportunity. That is an option, right? So that being said, so it's not always uh, the case. Um, I think uh, it will just be like by the end of the business day. Yeah, yeah. So you like know what five. I think is typically if uh, typically if it's closing day. Yeah, because I mean, assuming that you didn't move out in advance and you're actually uh, moving out on the day. Let, 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 let's let's go with that assumption. Typically, if I would say the safe route is if you're out by 5 p.m., you should be fine, but don't be later yeah. than 5. Yeah, don't be later than 5. Yeah. I think that, that's the safer route. Um, ideally, you would want to be out the day before or first thing in the morning. But if you can't do that, don't be later than 5 p.m. because the latest that the uh, lawyer will transfer is 5 p.m. And if the lawyer doesn't transfer in 5 p.m., that means there's a problem. You have bigger issues than when you're moving. Yeah, for sure. So most likely it'll be the next business day or or more than that. Yes. Because the land uh land registry office closes at five o'clock. Yeah. So if they don't do it before five o'clock, then most likely it'll happen the next day. Yeah, exactly. Um okay. When purchasing new construction, I hear the term occupancy date. Is this the day we close on our new home? What does this mean? So it's not the it's not the day that they move to their new home. It's the day that uh, you um, you take possession like, of yeah, the home. Yeah, right. You take the possession of the home. It doesn't mean on new construction buildings are often not registered on the day of occupancy. Um, what ends up happening is because people often, not always, but often, end up moving in before the construction construction is completely finished. Um, for example, if you're on the fourth level. They can still be working on the uh, 10th floor yeah. and you're moving in on the fourth floor. So you can't transfer title when the building hasn't been registered and the building cannot be registered until everything is complete by the builder. So what ends up happening is you take occupancy, which means you get possession of the uh, place. You do not have a mortgage yet when you take occupancy. Your down payment pretty much covers this, but you do have to pay a fee to the builder. Um, I don't want to say it's rent. But it's almost like rent. It's an agreed amount that you'll be able to see when you make your deal anyways. So they tell you a certain percentage, a certain fee, and it's still cheaper than rent, to be honest. Yeah, like, always cheaper than rent. Yeah, like like I'll give an example. I'll use my unit when I had a Sherway. Our occupancy, we didn't register for about three months, I think it was. So we took occupancy in September. For those three months, September, October, November, and I think it was December as well, we paid we paid the occupancy fee 
which was about roughly about 1200 bucks. Yeah. Right. So it was about 1200 bucks for those three months. Then in January, when the place registered, that's when the mortgage would come in and then you pay your mortgage and you're only paying your maintenance fee. Then that 1200 bucks would include the maintenance fee just to be clear. Yeah. So it's just 1200 bucks total to the builder. Once it gets registered, you pay your mortgage, whatever that is. And then at that point in time, you pay the maintenance fee, whatever rate that is. Um, these days, I think the average is about 57 cents a square yep, foot, something like that, yep. somewhere around there. So that's just the way it is. Um, and that's how that works. Um, okay, this one here. I hear that when you have a home that you live in, you do not pay capital gains when you sell. But if it's an investment property, then the capital gains does apply. What if I own a duplex and I live in one unit and rent out the other unit? Or I rent out the basement of my single family home? Since I live, live there, does that mean it's a primary residence and I don't pay any capital gains? I think yes. I believe yes. Because because it's his primary residence. So that, no. Oh, so that changed. Once that upon changed. a time, okay. if you live there, you could, uh, just the fact that you live there, it didn't matter that somebody else lived there. It was your primary residence. You didn't pay capital gains. Now, I don't want to get into politics, but we'll say a new politician that we still have came into uh, play and we had a, another liberal at the time and they changed all the rules. And um, those rules now, if you rent out your home, mm -hmm. even if it is your primary, pretend you live in a two-story home and you rent out a room and you're collecting an income. Anytime you collect an income, even if you live there, you're now paying capital gains. It doesn't matter that it's your home. Now, where the difference is that it's not that you just say bought your home 10 years ago, you rented it out for two years, and you're paying capital gains on the 10 years. No. You're paying capital gains on the two years that you have rented out the home. Oh, man. Okay. Got it. Right? Yeah. The, other two, the, the other eight years, it is not capital gains. Where the previous way, you could have rented it out for four years altogether. It didn't matter whether you live there or not. You move in, and as long as you live there for a year or more, it was exempt from capital gains. That no longer applies. Now, whatever years you had rented, you pay capital gains. The years you don't have rented and you live in there, you're exempt from those years. How they calculate that? Very simple. Ask your accountant. Because too complicated for me. Ah, here's another one. Okay, coming from live. If, an if someone is buying an investment property with cash, how can they prove to the listing agent that they're paying with cash so their offer can stand out in multiple offer situation? I don't think you have to prove it. If you're paying cash, you're just removing the finance condition. And I don't think it really matters. At that point in time, when you remove the financing condition, then they're liable. If they're lying, they're still screwed. If they're telling the truth, they got the property. It's really beyond the agent. It's like if somebody says I have the cash for it, then they have the cash for it. I mean, they can always prove that they have the cash for it, but that's something not not recommended, I say. But you can prove it if they want to make their offers stronger by showing like a bank statement, showing covering every everything on the bank statement, just leaving the, the balance of the bank statement. That could also help. Yeah, but I think it's enough that if you tell the listing agent that this is going to be a cash offer, I think that's enough. You don't actually have to physically present bank statements. Of course, yeah. You don't have to, no. All right. But I mean, if he wants to, you know, stand stand out. But the reality is the only difference between the cash offer 
and um, and the and the mortgage uh, thing is the financing condition. Once you move, remove that, I think it's equal footing. Doesn't matter. Um, but that was a great question. Okay, eight is very very interesting because when I first started hearing this term, I didn't know what the heck it was because there's a short form. But now I kind of learned what it is. What is a HELOC? Is this something advantageous to have to finance my home or am I better off with a traditional mortgage? Well, a HELOC, all that is, is a home equity line of credit. Some banks, I believe TD, when they give you a mortgage, they combine the traditional mortgage with a home equity line of credit. Now, you still make your one payment. I believe you still make your one payment. I've never had one. Um, but all it is, is that it's usually a combination. I'll give you an example and exa pretend your mortgage is 500,000. Sometimes what they do is they pay your mortgage, you know, they make your mortgage 300,000 and they give you 200,000 as the home equity line of credit. It's the same $500,000 mortgage you would have on a traditional mortgage. The difference is the 300 is locked. You can't withdraw from it. You can't put it back in, but the 200,000, you know, Helloc, you can actually Pay it and just say you have a hundred thousand cleared off, and you need fifty thousand. Just say you want to buy it from a car, or buy a car with it. You can take the fifty thousand out of it, so it's like you brought your mortgage up without applying for it again because it works like a line of credit. I believe if that's pretty much what it works out to be. Yep, yep. And and usually uh, there's secured line of credit, so they have a lower interest rate than not like an unsecured line of credit. Right. Yeah, because it's secured against the house. So let's be clear: when you sell the house, you don't keep the line of credit. It's it gone. goes to zero, <laughs> regardless of what you owe. So now, hmm, I want to buy a new construction project, but my realtor told me that it was an assignment sale. What does that mean? My friend said I shouldn't do it because the normal 10% or 20% down does not apply. I have to come up with the 300000 that the original purchaser wants in cash. Is this true? How does it actually work? So an assignment sale, it means that someone already like booked that unit from the builder before in the past, and now they just want to sell their assignment, which is whatever the unit that they booked. They want to sell the assignment to that unit to, to the new buyer. And uh, in terms of the normal 10, 20% down, well, when it comes to builders, it's usually, I believe it's 15% down over the... Of no, the assumption is that was already made. Oh, okay. Like we're, we're talking about, it's just say it's eight months before closing, mm -hmm. and the person who has it, want, like I bought a unit, yeah, and um, we're eight months before closing. I want to get rid of it and pass it to you, yeah, because you're gonna, I'm gonna sign it to you, yeah. So the question is, that do I have to put in the same twenty percent? Like, like if the unit was um, eight hundred thousand, pretend the 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 twenty percent. I know the math isn't gonna work. Was three hundred thousand? Yeah. Right. Now, when I assign, you know, assign it to you, does that mean you have to pay the three hundred thousand to me right now, or does that still happen on closing? I, I believe it was uh, like an agreement between both sides of, like the lawyers of both sides. They get to agree what, how much is being paid right now, and how much will be paid on closing. Yeah, yeah. So this is all all negotiable. Yeah, you don't have to come up with three hundred thousand. In fact, a lot of times, what ends up happening is if you want three hundred thousand, it'll be near impossible to sell. Right. So what happens is you have the agreement with the lawyer and how much you pay up front as your deposit and how much uh, happens on closing. So it's really uh, negotiate with the lawyer or negotiate with the realtors at the time of what the agreed amount on. So remember, during an assignment, there's no mortgage. You just have to be able to get approved for the mortgage. 
once you can get approved for the mortgage, then it's pretty much like a regular house uh, purchase. The difference is the deposit is going to the person who's who originally bought it, not the builder, and the builder is getting the difference that's owed. Yeah. Okay. I saw a home that isn't on the MLS. The It's one of those signs written for sale with a phone number. I asked my realtor what this was, and he said it was for sale by owner. If I was interested in this property, do I go and call the number directly, or do I get my realtor to make a make the call? What's the advantage and disadvantage of both? Also, if I want to make a purchase, who do I write the deposit to, and is my money safe that way should something go wrong? Okay. So uh, regarding the deposit, in this case, it, will, it usually goes to the lawyer of the seller in trust. Um that's where the deposit would, would would remain there till the closing happens but in terms of advantage and disadvantage is basically the if you do it with with your realtor on your side they they get to like you get them to negotiate with the seller um on 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 the on the deal and try to get the the best uh, price and the closing date and and whatever the inclusions and the exclusions are on the property and sometimes things needs to be fixed but usually when there's uh with like a buyer because we the realtor does that every day for a living the buyer doesn't do that every day for a living so there's some some details that the buyer that the realtor would kind of guide you uh during this transaction well yeah this is what it comes down to like uh, could you do it without a realtor you could but you got to remember why is the person selling it for themselves a seller doesn't have the same rules as the real estate agent does they're not looking out for the same things there could be many different reasons the guy wants to sell on his own now a lot of times could be i don't want to pay commission that's a possibility could also be that there's a problem with the house realtor says they have to disclose it homeowner said screw that decides to go without the realtor because because he can't get his way not saying that that is what happens but it could anything's possibility possible you don't know why they didn't go through a realtor and to be honest for the buyer who cares why they didn't go that's not their business with the exception of what could be wrong so using your realtor they're trained like like sad said you can go when like they do this every day so they're looking out for stuff so using your realtor can help you look for stuff they know what conditions to put in what terms to get you know to make sure you know to protect you they they would uh, get a home inspector where if you're buying directly from the homeowner they may not want that so there's certain protections you get by using a realtor. Is it mandatory? No. But is it a good idea? Probably. Yeah. It's it's a good and regarding the deposit. Yeah, regarding the deposit, technically, 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 technically does go to the seller's lawyer. I personally don't like that. It's remember the seller's lawyer is working for the seller. They're not working for you. So what ends up happening is they're always going to take direction from the seller. A lot of times when things go wrong, you end up having to sue for it. Not always because sometimes things are civil. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, in terms of if I'm doing it through a realtor, like if I were representing a buyer in this situation, I would try to insist it that it, that the deposit goes into the broker's trust account. Not supposed to, 
not really you know the way it's done but it is an option if everyone agrees so ah who pays for the status certificate buyer or seller and if seller has the status certificate ready could it be a fake well that's, that's an interesting question <laughs> <laughs> um usually the uh, seller pays for the uh, status certificate they're trying to get rid of their bill their uh, building they're trying to sell it and nobody in the right mind is going to buy a unit that does not have a status certificate so a lot of times it would be the uh, seller that would pay for it now if you have a good agent a great agent they may cover that for you i do it for all my listings condominium listings i ahead of time i request the status certificate i have it ready so when actually people are going for showings, the agents, if they're interested, they'd be like, hey, can you forward me the status certificate? And this way they can send it to the lawyer, get it reviewed before they put an offer. And this way they don't have to put it as a condition. So it, for me, it always made my job easier when I have the status certificate ready before the offer date or before even people start sending me offers. And uh, I usually cover it for my sellers. Absolutely. Now, chances are if it's coming from a realtor, Realtors are insured. They're bonded. They're, um, you know, we all have rules. So more than likely, they're gonna get a. They're not gonna have a fake one. I don't know if I would trust a for sale by owner or not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it would be or not. I, I don't know, but I can only answer to what I do know. And when it's going through the realtor, it's not gonna be a fake. Yeah. So that's all our questions for today. We will be back on Thursday, October the twentieth at 12 noon. So this is a bi-weekly show. I want to say thank you for tuning in. We will see you next time. See you.